Hello everyone, welcome back to yet another episode of Mike and Amit Talk Tech. If you've been following us over the last couple of episodes, you know that we took a dive through the history of artificial intelligence and then we spoke a little bit about how generative AI came into being, the importance of transformers, and how ChatGPT, everyone's favorite Gen AI tool, was actually created and the kinds of things it can do. But one of the things we actually discussed, if you recall, was that the idea for the transformer, the paper which actually introduced the world to the transformer, was given away by Google for free. It was an open source paper. So it's not surprising that others have jumped on that bandwagon and we now have multiple players that are actually playing in this game, which makes this super exciting. As always, I'm joined by my colleague, Mike Wade. Mike, obviously, OpenAI was right off the blocks. They had GPT-1, GPT-2, GPT-3. They released GPT-3.5 to the public, which caught everyone off guard, including the original gangsters, right? Google, who actually invented this thing to begin with. How has the field evolved since then? How do you see this? Is ChatGPT still the 800-pound gorilla in this market? ChatGPT's progeny, GPT-4, is probably the you know the most famous generative AI model out there for sure, especially with language. But there are many others, so we thought it might be interesting to just do a little bit of a dive into the landscape, to who the players are, what are they doing. You know, there's a lot of companies with very very deep pockets out there now competing in this landscape. You know, when ChatGPT came out on the scene in November of 2022. It was like a bomb went off, you know, there was so much better than anything that was out there. And you felt that, you know, it has a huge head start. But in fact, we're seeing that a lot of other players are coming up with very, very, very good competitive models. So maybe we could start by looking at the company behind ChatGPT, which is OpenAI. You know, it's not one of the big digital giants. You know, they actually have a very interesting history, don't they? They have an interesting history, right? And, and, and you know, the... It was kind of set up. I mean, the name sort of says it, right? Open AI is as a, you know, almost a reaction against the big digital giants, which are doing things behind closed doors. This was going to be open with a purpose to ensure that artificial intelligence benefits all of humanity, right? That was the original purpose. And, and you know, some Silicon Valley luminaries put in money up to a, a billion dollars in total you know, people like Elon Musk and Reid Hoffman and Peter Thiel and, and Sam Altman, who was at, at that time the head of Y Combinator, who since became president of OpenAI, they put the money in to develop kind of this open, let's help humanity, which is what they did, but has changed a little bit over time, right? It's no longer not-for-profit. I mean, they have, they have capped their profits, right? Now they say that the profits are capped at 100 times the funding that's received. So that's quite high. And they're not really open anymore. So they, we don't know. We, we, we kind of know where the data sets were from earlier versions of the GPT models. But the latest ones, we don't know. And we don't know the transformer models, the details of the algorithms behind that. We don't know that either. So it's changed a bit along the way. It's less open and it's kind of more commercial now than it was. 
Now it's it's done extremely well, right? ChatGPT kind of hit the ground and everybody went crazy. Very, very quickly, Microsoft made a big investment. I mean, they'd already invested over a billion and they invested, we don't know the exact numbers, but at least 10 billion into the company to get some kind of exclusive access, which you can see now, right? So Bing Chat, if you use Bing Chat, that is powered by uh, the GPT models from, uh, uh, from OpenAI. And they've really made a shift, you know, recently to be a lot more commercial, right? We see that they're they're making revenue now, significant revenue. The latest uh, data that they released was was eighty million dollars a month, which is significant, kind of a significant trigger. Close to a billion a year. That, that's what it means. Magic right? number. That's what it is. That's what it is. A billion a year. And the models keep uh, developing. They now have an enterprise version of uh, ChatGPT, which is really GPT four. So they're kind of becoming a lot more mainstream, but they're also, you know, attracting a lot more attention and not all of it is positive. Absolutely, right? I mean, uh, we have folks who are, you know, sustainability champions who are after them. There are folks who are ethics champions who are after them, you know, and oftentimes with good reason, yeah? There are folks who basically are, are pulling them up because they say, hey, look, you failed the original mission that you set for yourself as a founding organization, right? I mean, you, you basically have become yet another greedy for-profit uh, digital giant. What's the difference between you and the big baddies that you were supposedly put out there to be? And in the, in the bigger irony, all the traditional digital giants are now playing in this field as well, right? They are. They are. The open AI is, is definitely uh, not alone and, and they're playing more aggressively. And, and, and we see them now with subscription models and trying building a, API access and, you know, becoming a, essentially a commercial entity competing with many of the other big companies. That's their trajectory. How are the models of some of the other players, right? Because I believe Google has their own model, which is BERT or BARD. They also have another one, Lambda, I think. Microsoft obviously has incorporated this into Bing Chat, but Meta actually, in perhaps one of the biggest ironies, has the only open source version of a large language model that's out there, right? Which kind of, again, goes everything because they've stood for. So this is, is what's it going is, on here. It is bizarre if we look first at Microsoft, because, you know, Microsoft has adopted the OpenAI models largely, but they also have their own plans. It took them a while to get over one of their earlier experiments with chatbots, which was this thing they called Tay. Some of some of you Oh, that was a disaster. You may remember this. This was <laughs> this is, you know, we can laugh about it now, but you know, 2016 they released a chatbot, you know, out there, you know, hey, everybody can play with this thing. It's fun. It's dynamic. It answers you. And within a day, people had Yeah, it took all of 24 hours for us to screw uh, that one totally, up. Totally yeah. and it became, you know, a narcissistic, <laughs> racist. I mean <laughs> <laughs> it was just the things it was saying were horrible and, and Microsoft, you know, took it down very, very quickly and kind of stood on the sidelines a little bit uh, after that. But now they have big plans to integrate generative AI into their, you know, Office 365 suite and their, you know, this, this idea of co-pilot so that the, the AI can be your co-pilot if you're working on a spreadsheet or you're making an email or a file or, or, or something else. And that's kind of their, uh, their trajectory, you know, very, very much in concert with uh, OpenAI. But, th but then we have, you know, Google, and you mentioned Google is interesting because 
attention is all you need was the paper that was written that kind of kicked this off. And Google will you know, continue to work on this stuff. I remember in 2017, it developed some of the first commercial transformers. Uh, in 2018, it came out with something called Duplex. And I remember talking about this in class, this kind of sort of an assistant, right? You could you could ask it to go and, you know, make a make make a hair appointment for you or cancel a restaurant reservation or or something like this. And there was a very famous Sundar Pichai video with with launching it, but then it kind of died afterwards, right? Everyone was super excited about Duplex, but it kind of went nowhere after that. It kind that. of disappeared, right? And then there's Lambda, as, as you mentioned, a language model for dialogue applications. And I remember, you know, two years ago, an engineer on that team, you know, went public saying, this thing is sentient, right? It, it, under, it, it understands, it has consciousness. And, uh, you know, everybody got really worried about that. The guy was fired. <laughs> eventually, but kind of, you know, again, disappeared a little bit. And, and part of the issue for Google, I think, was a competitive issue. Because if you can go to a, a large language model and essentially get the answer to the question you're asking, this is an issue for Google because there's no advertising. This is the classic innovator's dilemma, isn't it? It absolutely is. So they have the innovation. If they release it, they know they're going to massively, you know, reduce their revenue because I think it's almost 90%. I mean, you know, maybe high 80s, 90% of Google's revenue for sure. yeah, comes yeah. from click advertising. So you see the ads and you click them. There are no clicks and there is no advertising, at least for the moment. So they need a new business model and revenue model. And they were kind of not really ready. I don't think they were quite ready for what happened with, with ChatGPT when it, when, when it came out. No, I think I did think they, they kind of blinked, right? I mean, not only were they not expecting this, they actually perhaps, uh, even though they did not show it on the outside, I think there was a little bit of panic on the inside saying this thing might actually eat our lunch, wherein we don't think uh, that's what it's going to be used for. This is not a search engine, folks. This is not what this thing does, right? But then the other big player in that space uh, did something strange as well, right? Facebook slash Meta launched their thing. What's, what's well, their deal? They, they sure did. But before we jump into, into Meta, let's just finish the story on, on Google because they did, in fact, release a generative AI large language model called BARD and they did it you know, a few months ago. And the benefit of that is that, it, that there's a model behind it that can also get more up-to-date data because it can search the internet in, in real time. That's what Google does. So BARD is out there. It's not bad. I'm not sure if it's as good as GPT-4, but it's not bad. And, you know, it has some cool features like it will give you an answer, but then it'll give you, if you want, two alternative answers. So the second and third one. So you can see, you, then you can pick the answer you like you like the best. So some of them have, you know, more detail than others and so forth. So you can, you know, you can kind of get a little bit behind the machine to see what's going on and, 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 you, and you can pick different. So it's learning from that as well. And looking forward, you know, there's a lot of buzz right now as we speak about a new generative AI application coming from Google's DeepMind division. These are the same guys who, who came out with AlphaGo and AlphaGo Zero. That's called Gemini. At least that's, I don't know if that's going to be the commercial name for it, but anyway, it's being called Gemini at the moment. And what they're saying about this one, not only is it going to be fantastic and great and better than anything we see, it's going to be multimodal. And one of, one of the issues we have right now with these generative AI models is that you have, you know, ones that work really well for text. Then you have other ones that work really well for, for images and others that really well for, for video or audio or whatever it is. 
And this is supposed to be, when it comes out, you know, one multimodal generative AI application that can do everything. And that sounds incredibly powerful, right? I mean, because if you can switch between modes, if I don't need different applications to create pictures, videos, audios, or actually get answers to my questions or, or write stuff up for me, that gives such a immense amount of power in the hands of the user, right? Some of the other problems still remain with hallucination and copyright and ethics and stuff like that. But nonetheless, this is just incredibly, incredibly powerful. We'll see. We'll see when it comes out. But as you brought up earlier, then we have Meta, you know, the erstwhile uh, Facebook, kind of sitting on the sidelines for a little bit, you know, uh, are these guys going to get involved? And then they kind of, they made this huge announcement, which took everybody by surprise, which was, you know, their Llama model, which is, again, these acronyms just terrible aren't they just driving crazy you tell you can tell they're they're designed by engineers that's absolutely uh, right large language so we have last last we have a lambda we have a llama we have a vicuna last i checked and uh, yeah it goes on and on and probably the worst is gpt i mean nobody can say this correctly right, right. Uh, gpt come on it's the worst acronym ever but you know a close second is llama from meta which is large language model meta ai and they opened it up uh, so essentially, they said, here you go. Anybody can use it. You don't have to pay individuals, enterprises, whatever. They had some limits, but very, very few go for it. And I think they felt they needed to catch up, which is probably true. So by making it free and open, uh, that's one way to do it. And one of the things they did, this was with Llama 1, not Llama 2. They didn't do it with Llama 2. Llama 1, they actually told everybody where the data came from. And this is something we didn't see with the other ones. They're very, very cagey about this. So we know the data set from which Llama 1 was drawn. And it's probably the same for all the models. So if we look at where it came from, there's some obvious ones like Common Crawl, which essentially is just crawling the web and just collecting everything you can find. I mean, there's trillions and trillions of data points there, billions of web pages. In addition to that, as you mentioned earlier, you know, GitHub, all the data from GitHub, Reddit, right? All the conversations that you got from Reddit, Wikipedia in all 20 languages, that's part of the, the foundational data set for, for Llama. All books that they could find in Project Gutenberg, which is hundreds, tens of thousands, probably maybe hundreds of thousands of books, plus other book repositories they're not completely clear on, but I think include some that are probably copyright. And they got in trouble for that. They got in trouble with that, as have some others, because they're using copyright material. Latex source code for scientific papers is in there. All kinds of Q&A, you know, from, from Stack and, and all kinds of other things. So it's a massive database, and we kind of have an idea where it's come from. So, so Meta is an interesting one because they've come in with their positioning is we have a great model, and we're going to give it away for free. And, and this, this makes this whole landscape really fascinating, Micron. I know we are not still done with describing it all, but nonetheless, because already we're starting to see that this thing is getting almost, not really, but almost moving towards a commoditization kind of a problem, right? Because really is there for, a, for an average user, obviously for a power user, there's probably massive differences, but for an average user, is there really a difference between a GPT and a bird and a llama? and a lambda, and how much of that is going to play out, right? And this is perhaps a conversation for a, for and, a future and, and podcast. And even if there are differences, are they good enough, right? Is, do, do, have we got to the point where it's really good enough 
for what I need. So I don't really care that this one is slightly better at this not very commonly used application because that's not something that I care about. As long as it can do the, you know, so I, I we're seeing the general use tools, but I think we're also seeing, you know, the emergence of more specific tools for very, very specific mm -hmm. applications. Do we have some, some startups that have developed a large language model for some very, very specific ones uh, with just saying, okay, let me just focus on this particular use case. Do we have some of those coming up as well? We do, we do. And um, more and more all the time, there's some really interesting ones. There's, there's, there's a, a company called uh, Anthropic. Anthropic is kind of made up of people who used to work at OpenAI that were believers in the original purpose. And, and so Anthropic is, is, is interesting because they have a constitution. Just like, you know, countries can have a constitution and the, the model has to follow the rules in the constitution. And this constitution is, you know, it's, it's built around, you know, codes of conduct and, and, and UN so that the model itself is not going to do anything that's illegal or immoral or unethical. So this is Claude and, and many of you will have heard of Claude and Claude too. And these are big, powerful models. Claude 2, you know, allows input strings of 100,000 tokens. That's about 75,000 words, like a novel. They're much, much bigger than, than uh, GPT-4. But some people complain that it's a little bit boring, right? Because it has this, you know, we, we talked before about this uh, reinforced learning with human feedback, right? It doesn't use human feedback. The feedback comes from the constitution that is built. Yeah, and I think perhaps to make it commercially a little bit more viable, maybe in a B2B context, they had to put up many more firewalls around what this thing could give and that perhaps uh, made it. But I guess it serves a purpose. So we've spoken a lot about these players, Mike, but if I'm not mistaken, all of them, or at least a vast majority of these ones, are either American or they're Western at the very least. What are the Chinese doing? What's happening in China with respect? No, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, these are almost all American. I mean, there's ones that we haven't talked about too much. Stability AI is another one that's really, really good with images. We have Hugging Face, which is another one, which is kind of to kind of develop a, an ecosystem or a platform for generative AI I models. Midjourney is another one. And then, of course, we have the big players, right? I mean, we don't hear too much about what Amazon is doing, what Apple is doing, what Salesforce is doing. But you know they're active. They're active. And so in the next months, we're going to see announcements from those guys. But but they're, as you said, they're all kind of US-based. And it would be nice if there was a counterbalance of other generative AI tools and technologies in different parts of the world. We hope to see that. China is one where definitely it's happening. Uh, it's definitely happening. We see the big players there. JD, interesting, is probably the leader in China. At the moment, they've got a large language model with 100 billion parameters. It's it's not as big as the GPT models, but it's still pretty big. It's called, they call it in English, the English version of Chat Rhino. I'm sure it's the greatest name in English. It sounds a lot better in, in Chinese. You've got Tencent and Alibaba, of course, making a lot of moves, but it's something very interesting in China, which maybe is, is a little bit the opposite of how it worked with e-commerce, is that the government is taking it a very, very proactive stance right out of the gate. You know, when it came to e-commerce, basically the Chinese government were hands off, you know, you guys go for it. And they came in later and this time they're coming in very, very early. So, you know, not so long ago, uh, just a couple of months ago, we saw the Cyberspace Administration of China and the Ministry of Science and Technology 
coming out with rules and regulations and green fences around what companies in China can and cannot do about generative AI. Of course, all the, all the big US um, uh, gen AI tools are banned there. And, and that came into force in, in August. So it just very, very quickly. So there's significant restrictions in China about what these companies can and cannot do with generative AI. And some thinkers and some uh, observers claim that that will effectively mean that the Chinese LLMs will probably never be as good as the Western ones, which are trained on more data, less ring-fenced, allowing for more variable outcomes. But this remains to be seen, right? We've made this mistake in the past of underestimating the technical prowess of the Chinese. But you're right. I agree with you. It is good to have some kind of a balance. It is good to have some cross-border competition over and above national competition. I think it just benefits all of us. I would love to see a European player. I'd love to see an Indian player. I'd love to see players in the Middle East, you know, provide some global competition. But it's hard because scale matters and and you need to get those huge, huge, huge data sets together. And that and that takes time and it takes money and, and you know, it, it takes a lot of scale. So that would be nice. But nevertheless, even with the predominantly U.S. you know, based uh, generative AI companies today and, and digital giants, we are seeing we're entering into an extremely dynamic and extremely exciting ecosystem competition is good and i think it's only gonna get better there you have it folks incredible field tremendous amount of local competitors at least for now soon to be international competitors and quite honestly if i'm summing up what mike thinks and what i think this is something that is only going to benefit us the variety of applications the different types of models, the different modalities are just going to make our lives better and easier and a lot more interesting while we are at it. And that's a really nice segue into the next episode because the next episode is we're going to dive into the impacts of generative AI on performance. So performance, whether it's productivity, creativity, financial benefits, and also some of the downsides. We'll look at that as well in our next episode. So thanks to all of you for listening, once again, it's Mike and Amit Talk Tech. And if you want any more information on the podcast or on programs that we offer at IMD on this topic and other digital topics, please go to imd.org. See you next time.